Let us believe what God says of us, as shocking as the good news is, that you are a saint in Christ. You are fully forgiven, not because of what you did for him, because he says it's true because of what he did for you. Let's take his body broken for us. That same night that he was betrayed, he took the cup, said, this is the new covenant of my blood. You're going to find your identity now not based on how well you've kept Torah or not kept Torah, but based on what I say, what I did, and how I love you. Let's partake together. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful. We're awestruck that the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the one who holds planets and atoms together would think of us. For what is man that you're mindful of him and so much that you would come and not only live among us, but die for us, to be crucified for us when we were treasonous to you, when we had run a mutiny against you. You loved us and pursued us while we were still yet sinners. And we thank you for your grace. And we thank you for forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. What is amazing is we've been going through the book of, uh, of Numbers that we have seen amazing things that God has done. In fact, I was reading a story about Samuel Morse, the guy who invented Morse code. And when he had got the invention done and was sending the first message across the telegraph, of all the verses in the Bible he could have quoted or sent letter by letter, did you know that the first message sent by telegraph came out of the book of Numbers? Chapter 23, verse 23, around the area of Balaam's oracles. The first message ever sent by telegraph were these words. You have to run them on the screen. Mine just came disconnected over here if you're in the back room. And the words were, Next slide. Oh, what God has done. We are now able to send messages across the room, across a state, and amazingly, eventually around the world. And so every time you see in FaceTime or using your phones, it began with someone who recognized, oh, what God has done with this technology. And what we have found in this journey we've been on through the, the book of Numbers and these wildernesses is we have, one, just been shocked at God's forgiveness and his patience and his kindness with his people. Sometimes we've been, oh, what has God done? We've been shocked by his discipline and his consequences and the plagues and the ways in which he has punished people, his people, from going wayward. And this chapter today will be no different than that. In fact, the next five weeks are going to be some of the most difficult, challenging. Skeptics bring these passages up all the time as to why you cannot believe in the Bible and you cannot believe in God. And you cannot believe the God of the Bible is good. So we're going to have to stop several times to address just a piece of those, and we'll see more and more of that in the next couple of weeks. But here in the wilderness of Moab, we're specifically looking at what the Bible calls lust. And it's always easy to shake your finger at somebody else's lust. <laughs> it's okay that you lust after people's approval, but that person who lusts after pleasure, now that's a sin. 
And if you lust after pleasure, you, you shake your finger at somebody who lusts after control and power and can't control their anger. But the New Testament calls these things over-desires. That when you desire something over God, an over-desire, it is that over-desire that creates this tension, this this brokenness that suddenly power becomes more important than God, that, that pleasure becomes more important than God, that people's approval becomes more important than God. And, and we often set ourselves up in places where that thing becomes more important than God and it begins to rule us. It begins to rule over us. It be- becomes the thing that controls us in our life. It's an over-desire. In fact, let's go back to where we were last week. Go to the next slide. It describes kind of what happened when they got to numbers, remember in, in the last chapter, it really describes what happens in the stages of temptation when things become an over-desire. Specifically, it would be about pleasure today, but again, it applies to every over-desire. First, you remain in a situation that keeps you tempted. Then you begin to commit, in this case, harlotry. You begin to commit gossip, right? Every time you stay after the tennis match, after the soccer game, everybody gossips about whoever's not there, right? So you got to be there so they don't gossip about you. But there's this over-desire to be in the know. So you remain in a situation rather than fleeing it. You begin to commit, in this case, harlotry. You then invite that temptation into your life. You begin to sacrifice to that temptation, your innocence, your family, your integrity, and then you bow down before it. It becomes an over-desire. It rules over you. And then you get joined to spiritual forces, in this case, the force of Baal, and you have other gods or other spiritual forces that are leading you. And then the anger of the Lord is aroused against you because you're cheating on him, basically, after everything he's done for you. So this is, in general, how temptation works. When I remain, I begin to commit. When I accept an invitation to temptation, I eventually bow down to it. When I bow down to it, I eventually join in with it. So this is true of all temptations. I want to look at two stages of temptation today. And my hope is that long before we fall into the, to the pit, right, of temptation, I don't want to have my inner spidey sense, my inner Holy Spirit tell me once I'm in the pit, oh my goodness, time to be nervous. I don't want to have my inner spidey sense begin to, to tell me when I'm right on the edge, well, maybe you're in trouble. How do we develop an inner sensitivity to the spirit that when I'm three steps away, when I'm even heading down a path toward temptation, I can hear the Holy Spirit saying, whoa, time to back up, time to find forgiveness, time to realign my leadership in your life. So let's walk through that together. Let's start with the first stage. We begin here in chapter 25. We find them in an acacia grove. So first of all, what's an acacia grove? Remember, they've been down here in the valley near Jericho. And God's been working behind the scenes, protecting them from the curses of Balaam. God has been you know, full speed ahead, working to protect his people. And they are going to remain in this acacia grove. You've never seen an acacia tree. They're indigenous to Africa often, and they were moved up into the Middle East. Beautiful, beautiful trees that are often found in these wadis in the wilderness. Well, apparently something about hanging out in this acacia grove sets the stage for their temptation. The Bible doesn't tell us why. Maybe they were supposed to have moved across the Jordan River by now. Maybe it was time they should have had some battles by now. Maybe they decided to relax or become complacent. But there's something about remaining here rather than moving into God's plan for them that sets the stage for temptation. I don't know what your acacia groves are. 
What are the places you're remaining? And every time you remain there, you start having a chat with an old high school friend, and it's just a friend. I'm just going to lunch. Nothing wrong with having lunch. Nothing wrong with having a trainer of the opposite sex. Then I start to talk about how my marriage is kind of in an unhappy stage right now. Nothing wrong with that, but not very wise, is it? And when you remain in these type of acacia groves, everyone but you can tell you where that path is going. Now we'll play this out a little bit slower. So Israel remains in this acacia grove, and for some reason, that location allows them to be there when Balaam and Balak send this group of Moabite prostitutes of Baal down to their camp. And they begin to commit harlotry with the women. They're actually not just women. They're actually prostitutes from the Baal worship center of Moab. So then they invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods. Hey, your God, my God, we'll kind of mix the thing together. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So now they're aligning themselves to other spiritual forces. Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. Now this word Peor in Hebrew is very interesting. It's going to be referenced all through the Bible. Remember what happened back at Baal of Peor, Baal of Peor. The word Peor means opening. It might actually be a sexual innuendo, the idea that they open themselves up sexually. It might be spiritually open themselves up to spiritual forces. But whatever it is, they were open to things that were not of God. And therefore, the God of the Bible is angry. He's aroused against Israel for doing this. So much so that God says to Moses, take all the leaders of the people, the leaders of the people, and hang them. Hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, and the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses turns to the judges, right? Not the particular judiciaries, might be another way of saying it, of Israel, and says, every one of you kill the men who were joined to Baal of Peor. Here's a little picture of Baal. Now, you read this passage, and already it's like, God, that seems inappropriate. That seems disproportionate. That seems unjust. That seems wrong. I don't like that. We in our culture judge that and say, God, you're blowing this out of proportion. You're getting carried away. All right, so let's just pause for a moment to try and address that. Because I think, I will stay here on the passage. I want you to see this Baal piece here. Even Oprah Winfrey, years ago, I saw an interview with her, and she said, I cannot believe in the God of the Bible, especially the God of the Old Testament, because he's a jealous God who's always angry and doing angry things. And so we kind of take our cultural perspective, and we say, I don't know what happened there, but I know enough to know that what God did was wrong. And the idea that jealousy is always wrong, because most of the time when we see jealousy, we see insecure jealousy. Someone's insecure, and so they're jealous of things, and they just let that insecurity and paranoia play out. But there's a different kind of jealousy. I had some friends who were going through a marriage crisis. He had had an affair. I was helping him out with some kind of realignment, and then his wife had called me to kind of help out, and she said, you know, I know I need to forgive him. I know I need to forgive his mistress. Uh, I know that God befriends me when I do the wrong things, and so I'm trying to learn how to befriend her. I said, well, can we talk about that for a second? She said, yeah. I said, we all need to forgive, right? We all, we all have, have fallen short. But the healthy biblical emotion in this situation is godly anger and godly jealousy. Really? Yeah. You covenanted together to only share physical intimacy with each other, 
and something that belonged to you has been given to someone else. So it is not insecure jealousy to want what belongs to you. That's godly jealousy. That's godly anger. Now we need to work through it. We need to eventually get to a place that anger doesn't consume you, and, and, and they did. But she had never thought that there could be a place for godly anger and godly jealousy. But you see, in that situation, you're like, oh, that does make sense. That would be the appropriate emotion. What is happening here in this moment is the equivalent of somebody cheating on God. God says, listen, we already had a Baal moment, right? You made the golden Baal worship years ago, and I told you, I have led you out of Egypt. I delivered you. I made a Passover for you. I brought down the Torah for you, and you traded me in for a big golden cow. And now, 40 years later, they're doing it again. What's the psychological healthy approach to having someone that you love and covenant with cheat on you? It's anger. Now we're going to get back to the endorsing of seemingly murder in just a second. But before we do that, let's talk again about the temptation aspect and application. They got here because they remained. And I think our, our objection here to God is that he's taking sexual sin in particular way too seriously. Because our culture doesn't take it seriously at all. And that's the first stage of temptation, is when I remain in the acacia grove, I begin to commit. And here's what happens. Here's what kind of happens in your heart. You say, let's not get carried away by taking this so seriously. And that is the best way to get seriously carried away. <laughs> when you say, let's not get carried away taking gossip too seriously, you'll get seriously carried away by gossip. Let's not take finding my approval from other people too seriously. Okay, but you're going to get seriously carried away by defining yourself by the people's approval. Let's not take this too seriously. Let's not get carried away taking pornography uh, too seriously, faithfulness too seriously. Okay, but you're going to get seriously carried away by it. It's going to become an overdesire. I had a friend who's uh, dating again. He's uh, in his 50s and went through a divorce. And he started to date again, and he's like, Chad, I'm trying to be faithful. I know that God wants me, me not to have sex before marriage, and, and I'm trying, but I'm not doing a very good job. Could we talk about it? I said, sure. I said, I think right now you're focused on what God's against. God's against premarital sex and extramarital sex. I said, let's talk about what he's for. God has got this beautiful romantic notion that he has someone for you. That God has someone for everyone. Unless he gives you the gift of singleness. And because God has someone for you, God wants you to trust him to wait for that person he has for you. And when you have sex with someone who you're not yet in covenant with, you're actually not trusting him for the person he has for you. Yeah, yeah, but we've talked, we're serious, we're going to get married. Oh, but you're not married yet. So you're actually having sex with somebody else's wife because she's not your wife and vice versa. I said, so the issue is God is faithful to us. And because he's faithful to us, he wants us to be faithful to him, but also to express that in relationship by being faithful to your current spouse Right? We all kind of can kind of reject the idea of cheating on your current spouse, but also in singleness to be committed to your future spouse by waiting until you're in covenant before you get intimate physically. He's like, oh, well, that's good. So I called him up about a week and a half later. I said, how are things going? He's like, that was really good. That really helped us. It's, it's not about what we're not doing. It's what we're trying to be faithful so we can have a trusting relationship. I said, how's it working out? Well, it didn't work out. He's like, I need like one verse, like when we're on the couch and we're making out that we can kind of use. And he kind of had all the do not fornicate and all these King James verses. I said, how about this one from Song of Solomon? Do not awaken love 
until it's time. Love's a good thing. It's good to awaken it. It's just not time yet. I said, can you trust God's way works? Do you trust that you know better than him? I think we come to a passage like this and we say God is taking the unfaithfulness and the idolatry of Baal worship too seriously, right? God got carried away. But it's actually when we don't take things seriously enough that we get carried away. So think of that for a moment. Let's address the bigger problem. It seems like God is endorsing murder in this passage. So a few things to address here in this. When you think about murder, murder is unjust killing, and it's usually people who are expressing that to other people. So a few things to think about in this passage. God said to Moses, who was basically the leader of the people, take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders. And notice, he didn't say go... um, uh, hold the Moabites accountable to their actions or their laws or the, uh, later on the Romans or the Greeks. He's saying the Jewish people who've coveted with me to be in this community knowing the, the blessings and curses, people chose to be in this relationship, they know the consequences, those are the ones I'm holding accountable. A couple other things to think about. Number one, all through the Bible, the higher the revelation you get, the higher the accountability you get. And this is true in business, right? The higher, uh, more responsibility you have, you make a mistake, there's bigger consequences. These people that God's given these consequences to had, they're seeing God every day in a pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. That's a lot of revelation. They've had him give them water and miraculous food. They've had him give Torah. They got to see, or their parents got to see, the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, this is supernatural revelation they've been given. And because of that, there's higher accountability. And after 40 years of wandering, because of the golden calf and other things, they are now setting up the same thing. So higher revelation requires higher accountability. Second illustration here is these are the ethics of war. So this is not personal ethics that are being displayed here. This is the ethics of war. Remember, they're about to go to war with the Moabites. So this is the equivalent of sleeping with the enemy. So I want you to think military, ethics of war, this is treasonous activity. Maybe in modern-day terms, you're a part of the Ukrainian army, and you find out that a group of your men went over to the Russian forces, and a group of female Russian forces who had just launched the missiles that blew up the mall that innocent bystanders of Ukraine got killed in, and you decide to sleep with those soldiers who shot the missiles rather than attacking them. Can you feel that? See how it feels a little bit different? This is treasonous activity, capital punishments in the ethics of war of people who are allowing the enemy who's seeking to destroy them and is instead of holding them back and protecting their people, engaging in it. Thirdly, this is a violation of covenant. God had laid out the covenant. Here are the blessings, here are the curses, and the people chose to be in this covenant of the Jewish people. And when he says to Moses, I want you to go and hang them, He turns to the judges, to the judiciaries, to the government representatives of Israel to do the work. This isn't personal ethics. I kill people who do things I don't like. This is the state is set up to put in place the covenant as laid out. So that's not going to solve all of it, but hopefully that gives you a little bit different context to what's going on here. But the application stage is, I want to ask you, maybe it's hard for us to take in our current culture sexual unfaithfulness in all of its form very seriously. And it's easy to say, well, thank goodness I'm married. I don't commit premarital sex. And then you have an affair, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I'm still doing it. Or you hear the words of Jesus, because even when you lust after someone in your heart, you violate God's command. Oh, the Bible talks about in marriage, 
Do not withhold from one another. When you withhold from your spouse, you're out of God's will. It also says don't demand from one another, you're out of God's will. So there's so many ways in which we can take this gift of God and use it in a distorted way. So the question is, are you seeing this gift of God through his lens and trying to be generous with your bodies and marriage the way God is generous with himself? Or have you kind of stumbled in different areas? Is it time to take a step back and realign yourself? Let's move to the second stage. And this is where, honestly, the problems in the passage get even more difficult. It's a very graphic and challenging passage, and we move here to stage two. Here in stage two, I want you to imagine that tabernacle we've been talking about is, is here. So we have the outer walls with a doorway to get into the outer walls of the tabernacle. Then we have the Holy of Holies here with a doorway. And what's going to happen is going to occur right here in the doorway to the Holy of Holies where the, where the sacred space is. And, and to understand that, you need to remember that the, the holy place is like the bedroom chamber in the sense this is a sacred place for God and his people to meet. They share secrets with one another. They, they forgive one another, or God forgives us. We don't forgive him. But this is an intimate, sacred place God has created for us, almost like a, a spiritual, not sexual, but spiritual bedroom changer of sacredness. So keep that in mind with what happens next. So indeed, one of the children of Israel, this is one of the leaders, having just been punished, having just seen the consequences, this guy says, I don't care. So he came in. And he presented to his brethren a Midianite prostitute in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the congregation. So there, as you're going to see, they are weeping over the people who died. They're weeping over the sin that's been committed. Moses is standing there like, man, what are we, oh my goodness, this is going to be another one of these 40 years wandering moments. This guy walks up in front of Moses, in front of all the people with a Midianite prostitute, walks in through the front door of the tabernacle, walks up to the front door of the Holy of Holies, undresses himself and the prostitute, and starts having sex right there. I mean, it's just shell-shocking. And they were weeping right there at the door of the tabernacle of meeting when this occurs. Now, what's going to happen is going to be even more flabbergasting than what we just read. But I want you to emotionally get the temperature of this. I talked to a friend of mine this week who had shared a story years ago, and I want to make sure I had his permission and got the details right. He said I could. He just moved to Cincinnati. He was single, as he said, not really walking with the Lord. He met this girl, and they just really fell in love. They lived here in, in Mount Adams area, and they were talking future. They were talking marriage. They were talking like spending their life together. He was at work late one that night on a Friday night, and sure enough, he got off work early, and he thought he'd stop by and surprise her. And he did. He had the keys to the apartment, opened the door, and as he walked in, he heard rumblings and noises, and all of a sudden, he saw a man run out of the bedroom and passed him out the apartment. And he just was devastated. I thought we had a plan. I thought... I thought we were together, and besides that, he had just moved to Cincinnati, so besides his relationship with her and his future plans and dreams, it was all his friend group was tied to this, this everything blew up. He said, I never felt so devastated and so violated, and so you could do this here in your bed, our bed? That's the idea of how God feels, that someone has brought a Baal-worshipping prostitute into the sacred space of the place he's created for he and his people. 
Well, as they're about to head into the holy place, not just the doorway, into the holy place, Phineas jumps up. Phineas, one of the priests, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, saw. They're about to go into the holy place, not just the door. He rose from among the congregation. He took a javelin in his hand. He went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust through both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her body. And because he did that, the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000 people. And that's because he stopped it. This was like the merciful act that only 24,000 people died, as you'll see in a few weeks, almost all from the, from the uh, tribe of Simeon. So again, how, why would God allow this? How can this be true? And you're going to see that God affirms, affirms what Phineas does. So to understand this, let me give you an analogy, because I think it might be helpful. The analogy is that of Chernobyl and a nuclear power site. You use nuclear power the right way, and my goodness, it powers things, it empowers things. You can empower a whole country with the kind of power of a nuclear power site, a nuclear power plant. But you get the wrong thing in the wrong room, you turn the right, wrong dial, dial the right way, you get the temperatures the wrong temperature, and something that is meant for good to empower a nation and power a world can blow up like it did at Chernobyl, right? Because people were flippant with it. People brought the wrong thing into the wrong room. God set up the priests in the book of Numbers to act like nuclear power plant guards. He had said, listen, my presence is like a nuclear reactor, and, and it's designed to give you power and to give you strength and to give you forgiveness, but make sure anyone who comes into the holy place, there's a certain way to do it. You've got to wash this hand and bring this thing. There's certain ways you need to conduct yourself when you come into the, to the inner sanctuary, or else that power is going to be problematic. You're going to have a Chernobyl on your hand. And so, because he'd given out all these clear warnings, he specifically had said, if you remember Drew mentioned this in Numbers chapter uh, 3, I think we pulled up, yeah, 3 and 18, that the priest's job is if somebody who is not prepared spiritually was to bring that into the, the inner chamber, it would blow up and basically it would hurt people. So their job was to, to block the door to make sure that no one came in and exploded the nuclear reactor. Here's how it says in, in Numbers 3. Aaron and his sons shall attend to the priesthood, but any outsider, somebody who's unclean, inappropriate, not prepared properly, if they start running into the Holy of Holies, put them to death, lest they blow us all up. Chapter 18, then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary. Therefore, you and your sons will attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil. You shall serve, and I give your priesthood. It's a gift of service. Then he throws this on at the end. But if an outsider, someone who's unclean, something that's inappropriate, comes into that space, you've got to put him to death, or all of this will affect everybody. So I want you to picture Phineas as that nuclear power plant guard who's like, oh my goodness, it's bad now. If you go into the next chamber, you're going to blow us all up. And that's when he takes a spear and stops them before they go further. 24,000 people have died of the plague had he not stopped him where he did. Now that's still hard to swallow and hard to understand. So let's get some application and then we'll go back to maybe the final example of that in the New Testament. I think this is so true to see in application. 
it's the second stage of temptation, that often we want to invite the benefits of certain lusts into our life, the lust for power, the lust for approval, the lust for pleasure. We invite the benefits, right? It makes us feel good. It makes us feel powerful. We get certain benefits of the pleasure or, you know, the pornography says yes when my spouse says no, you know, whatever it is. Those are the benefits. And then doesn't this happen over and over and over and over again? It's easier to see in other people than yourself. We invite the benefits of lust into our life, and then we're shocked when we invited the consequences of lust too. But you reap what you sow in due time. And so we're shocked at the consequences. I can't believe there's a plague of 24,000 people died. But those consequences came with the Baal worshipers. And archaeologists have studied the Canaanites for, for years, and they have found that Canaanites went extinct often in different pockets because the level of sexual orgies and things they committed in, the STDs that were spreading, they basically burnt themselves out. They basically destroyed all themselves because of the disease they had. So even medically, as we'll talk about in a few weeks, there's a medical issue going on. They basically brought this medical uh, priestess who's engaged in, in, in fertility worship all the time into their camp, and it's now spreading. So spiritual components here, there's relational components, but I think practically for you and I to say, how often have I not taken sin or temptation seriously? I haven't taken my anger seriously. I haven't taken my, 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 my gossip seriously. I haven't taken my need to control things seriously. And because of that, I, I'm remaining in it, and I'm tiptoeing down, and now I'm falling into the pit. And I got some benefits out of that, telling people off or whatever it is I got out of it. And, and now I'm shocked when I lose my faith my family, and my future. Because those are the consequences that came with inviting the benefits of lust into my life. And this is why I think Phineas, as challenging as this passage is, is a picture of Jesus. It's a priest that takes sin very, very seriously and in the tabernacle deals with it ultimately. He's a zealous priest. Let me describe him again and, and then show you how it relates to Jesus. Then the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, he turned back my wrath. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? He took the cup of wrath for us so that God could turn back his wrath upon us because he poured it out on Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've turned back my wrath from the children of Israel. Why? Because you were zealous with my zeal among them. You were zealous knowing what is right and what is wrong and what the consequences could be. And because of what you did, I did not consume the children of Israel. The, the, the reactor didn't completely blow up. Therefore say, behold, I'm going to make with him a covenant of peace. Because he dealt with the problem, because he stopped the sin from coming into my presence, I'm going to make a new covenant. He calls it a covenant of peace. It's going to be an everlasting covenant, an everlasting priesthood, because he was so zealous for his God, and he made atonement for the children of Israel. So let me back you up in time a little bit. God appears to Abraham at a certain place in Israel. The tabernacle is made, but eventually becomes permanent when David decides to build it. Of all the places in, the, in the Israel, he builds it in Jerusalem, same place God appeared to Abraham. So now we have the temple located in Jerusalem where God's holy place is. Jesus comes from heaven to earth and he comes to Jerusalem, the same place the holy place is, tracing all the way back to Abraham, and it's there he's put on a crucifix 
And right there in the presence of God on that holy hill, taking the consequences of our sin, your sin, my sin, my over-desire, your over-desire, taking it so seriously that he will be whipped. He'll be nailed to a cross in the most brutalizing of ways. And even once he dies, they will take what? Not quite a javelin, but pretty close, a spear. And they thrust it into his side where blood and water flowed. See, the javelin that was meant for you and I, for all the ways we have brought other gods, other desires into God's presence in our life, we know better. We've cheated on God. Yet God took the spear for us. He took the javelin for us so that blood and water could flow. And he goes, even though you violated me, even though you've cheated on me, I still love you and I died for you. And the ultimate zealous priest the one who was zealous with the ultimate zeal, he turned back the anger of God by saying it is finished. He's offering to you the ultimate covenant of, pre, covenant of peace. You can be at peace with God because he was the ultimate everlasting priesthood. And what Jesus did in that cross was he made atonement for you and for me. Remember when Jesus is walking at the road to Emmaus, he says, the whole Bible is really about me. And so ultimately the picture of what happened here is how to take sin seriously and to take forgiveness even more seriously. So what's the application for us? What's well, interesting how these ideas get played out in the New Testament. I think for you and I, what would it look like this week to be zealous about God's holiness and to be zealous about good works? The second part's not quite as intuitive, so we'll come to that second. Being zealous about God's holiness is saying, you know what, the things that I think God's gotten carried away with or that I'm not taking too seriously, I need to start saying, God, I don't really understand it. I don't even like it. I don't even prefer your method, but I'm going to trust that you know better than me in the entanglements I've been dancing with recently. And maybe it's the phone call. Maybe it's the emotional connection that's happening. You can feel yourself moving in a direction away from your spouse. Maybe it's the website you're using. You're feeling discouraged or not appreciated or not respected by your spouse and you're getting on the internet late at night. Whatever the ways in which you've not taken God's holiness seriously and you can find yourself being carried away, God would just say, hey, listen, I told you it was painful down there, but I still love you. Here, grab my hand. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on back. I took the javelin for you. We'll condemn what you did, but not condemn who you are. Let's get back on track. It's really interesting, the spiritual components of this that, that play out here in the passage. He says, I want you, <laughs> he mentions them by name. He says, one guy's name is Zimri, the guy who died, and the woman who died, her name was Cosby. And uh, then verse 17, so here's his application. Here's what it means to take God's holiness seriously. Harass the Midianites and attack them, for they harassed you with their schemes, look at the word schemes, by which they seduced you. In other words, they came here to destroy you, spreading the STDs, spreading the spiritual uh, violation. They came here to curse you. They harassed you. Notice the word harass. The word harass is an interesting word. In Hebrew, the word harass means to vex or besiege the things you've tolerated and remained in or began to bow down to. In other words, someone came to, to besiege you, to take you down. I want you to besiege the things that are trying to besiege you. I want you to take defending yourself against those schemes as seriously as they're taking their schemes to destroy you. 
if you wanted to destroy you, how would you do it? You know you. You know your unique temptations. What schemes would you use to take you down? And then I want you to take God's holiness so seriously, you begin to harass the harassing temptations. You begin to besiege the besiegers. You begin to say, I have got to be armed for this. Which is why Paul picks up in this idea in Ephesians. He says, everyday Christians, you've got to put on the whole armor of God. Because there's somebody trying to take you out. There's somebody trying to harass and vex and destroy you. He even says it. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes, the harassments. Remember, it wasn't just a Moabite army. It was the spiritual forces of Baal expressed through the Midianite army that was trying to take them down. There are spiritual forces trying to destroy you. And my encouragement to you is to think about what those are and to take, be so zealous about God's holiness that you besiege the very things trying to besiege you. And then that word zealous gets picked up in the New Testament to say we not only need to be zealous for God's holiness, but also zealous for his good works. Look what it says. It's just fascinating in the New Testament. Jesus Christ... That ultimate priest, he gave himself for us. Even when we cheated on God, even when we had over-desires, even when we went the wrong way, he did that, that he might redeem us, buy us out of our over-desires, buy us out of our bondages, buy us out of every, every, yeah, every lawless deed so that he could purify us because we tainted ourselves and dirtied ourselves to be his own special people. He, he still wants to be married to us, his special people. And when you get that, when you're overwhelmed by that, when you're struck by that, you become zealous for good works from the book of Titus. God has done such good works for me. How can I show good works to the people in my community? Isn't that a fascinating application of this? Being zealous for God's holiness and being zealous for God's forgiveness leads you to be zealous for good works, hoping that your good works in our culture will draw people to the one who did a good work for you. So maybe today, being zealous about God's holiness is figuring out where you're remaining and you need to flee from and what you need to take seriously. Maybe being zealous for God's holiness means you need to uh, realize you've been carried away and that you need to go find that ultimate priest. Or maybe like in this passage, it's time to be so overwhelmed that the God of the universe would love you that you're like, how can I bless other people that they would find out what motivates me? There's a couple ways we're doing that as a church, and maybe you want to be part of a, kind of our new IPM drive for, getting, for backpacks. We're trying to get backpacks for back to school. We don't just buy backpacks because people need backpacks. We're trying to do good works so that people ask, well, why would you do that? Where did those come from? It came from Horizon. Just recently, we donated 817 pounds of, of of, of bags of food in the name of Jesus. Or maybe you've never been part of our happy church movement. You've got a high school student and, and maybe being zealous for, for good works means sending your kids down for our, our, our trips July 20th to 24th. We go to the poorest places in the world, which is only about an hour from here. And in Jesus' name, we help and we assist and we do good works. But what if as Christians we were known for being zealous to do good works to people who believe differently from us, who've come to different conclusions than us, how might that draw people to find the God who's forgiven us all? Let's pray.
Father, what a difficult passage, Father. But I just thank you that you're the ultimate Phineas and the ultimate priest. And thank you for taking that spear from me. And thank you that through the flowing of your blood and your water, I am cleansed and I am forgiven and I am washed. Help me to take your holiness more seriously, but to take your forgiveness the most serious of all. In Jesus' name, amen.